Thank you. Good morning, everybody, um, uh, and welcome to this um, outreach conference at, as it is at, um, at our, our project on reconstituting democracy in uh, in, in in Europe. So um, this is a um, this is a, a, a open uh, um, conference on uh, on some of the things that we have found out in this uh, this project and. Uh, I think we have to start, even though I know that a lot of people have not yet arrived. Um, in, um, in this uh, process, we are in a way studying uh, democracy in, uh, in uh, Europe. But why? Why are we today once again raising the issue of EU democracy in these days? of financial crisis, of lack of concerted action and solidarity in Europe, when there is struggle over what to do to Greece, with regard to Greece, with, with regard to Libya and, and Syria for that matter, when the steam has gone out of the constitutional project, when Schengen is on the brink of collapsing, isn't talk of democracy just a luxury that we cannot afford? After all, politics is about solving problems and de delivering. That is what people require, say the technocrats. Why bother with democracy when there is little interest in the media and the political elite? Elite, we may, one may add. But one should, one should really bother with, uh, with, uh, with democracy. Because it is not the economy stupid, as Clinton countered Bush, but it is democracy. It is about democracy. Democratic forms of rules are on average better than any other alternative. On, on average, they produce better results than known alternatives, than what the technocrats can come up with or with, with what the despotic can come up with. Less mistakes are done in a democratic system of, of, of rule. Further, at the bottom of all the crises and the political disasters lie the question of justification. Why should we suffer from others' mismanagement? Why should we pay for others' recklessness and, uh, and misbehavior? People require answers. They are answered, and they require that the rulers, that the rules that they are supposed to abide, abide by are abided by those in power. Only a system of democratic rule can ensure compliance and accountability. Moreover, the integration process proceeds even in times of crisis and maybe, or maybe particular then. If the Euro, if the EU had not existed, it would have to be in, in, invented. Citizens and states all over Europe and beyond are deeply interwoven and affect each other's well-being and freedom in, a, in profound ways. The financial situation is, of Greece is all Europeans' problems. Even for Norway, where we come from, who ha has, um, uh, who has, uh, who has, yeah, you know, it's not a member of the union. But even, even for Norway, this has effects because they have placed one fourth of his, of his own funds in European bonds. So, so much for independence and sovereignty. But we are all affected. And we all have to suffer the consequences of mismanagement. Hence, we should all have the possibilities of partake, to partake. Or to, to, to cite once again Thomas Paine, there should be no taxation without representation. The EU is replete with successes, but in later years, even more with disasters. The situation has changed dramatically from when the Reagan project was con conceived of in 2005. 
We may ask what the status for democracy, democracy really is in Europe today, and also for the Union. What is the status for, for, for democracy when we look at the situation in Greece, in Hungary, in Italy, to take the most obvious cases? In the Recon, in the Recon Project, we have dwelt into the many dimensions of democratic rule. Our research ranges from constitutional and representative matters. We are the institutional makeup for collective decision making to the role of media and public debate in civil society. Upstreams and downstreams processes have been analyzed and the question of gender justice, of collective identity, of foreign, and po foreign policy have been studied and also aspects of the political economy of the union have been addressed. We have, we have also examine the concept of democracy and why the EU should be democratic. One answer, obvious answer, is that democracy, democracy is a claim of justice. No political order can be just if it is undemocratic. Another is that European integration takes place among already democratic states. So why should European citizens expect less from Europe than from their nation state? But can there be democracy beyond the nation-state? And in that case, which democracy for Europe? The point of departure for the Recon is that there is a democratic deficit, obviously, in, in the EU. But maybe there will be an even bigger democratic deficit if it has not existed. But, uh, but, um, but in our, our research question has been, in a way, how can how can, given that there is this deficit, how can democracy be reconstituted? How can it be re-established? Which direction must the reform process then take if there should be a democracy, a European democracy? And to that purpose, we have worked out, out three ideal type of typical models for democracy, for how Europe could be democratic. How could it be democratic? The first model is, in a way, the most obvious one. It is, uh, it is this thing of seeing the EU as a more or less an inter intergovernmental organization which are, which, uh, which is controlled by the member states through the council and that this is in a way where the power lies and this is, uh, even at the bottom, this is what the EU is. It is an international organization like, for example, NATO or the United Nations. Of course, it is, uh, it is a, a, a very problematic model and, and all, all, all the research shows that this cannot work and it is, uh, EU is obviously more than that, but on the other hand, it, it's, uh, and it is very difficult to control it by the member states. The second model takes this to, to, to another level and asks if the, if the EU could be seen as a, as a kind of federation, a multinational federal state that could in a way establish direct links to the citizens and also establish direct um, uh, legitimacy in, in, in this sense that people could be involved in, in elections and in the public debate in Europe and then ensure democracy at that level. Yeah, this is a wonderful model, but since, since uh, as I said, the constitutional, the steam of the constitutional project has um, evaporated, so there is not much, uh, much in it, even though maybe this is what Europe really needs. The third, the third model is in a way to see that the, the EU is European, the uh, EU is a kind of European subsystem sub of a larger cosmopolitan order, or a world order. And, 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 and this is a kind of, of, of regional, uh, uh, political uh, entity that can in a way ensure, uh, solve a, lo a lot of problems and, and in different areas solve more, more problems than in others and in a way, uh, uh, have a kind of, of, of structure that is, uh, 
that is not a state, but but uh, but is a kind of of uh, system of networks uh, governance uh, or or uh, or a multi-level structure of government as we as we call it here. So where is in a way is it, uh, the EU then heading when we uh, establish this this uh, this um, uh, alternatives. Some would say that there is uh, there is no way it is going backwards with regard to 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 to, uh, to democracy. But but we can have a so that we need perhaps for example a fort a fort model. But uh, this is uh, we we can uh, discuss this later when you hear some of the findings from from this uh, project. This is a comprehensive project. It is a a, a, a huge project, and it is uh, one that has lasted for almost five years. We will end this project by the end of by the end of the year. And partners come from all over Europe and even beyond, and uh, and uh, and it has about yeah 22 partners I think we we are we are and and then we have um, about 120 researchers has been involved or is involved in this uh, in this project. So this is huge and it is coordinated by Arena. It is a center for European studies in in in, in Oslo, but we of course we draw. Heavily on on all the, all the others, and and we are we are, have been a it's a very collaborative project, as you also will see from when we present some of these uh, these uh, these findings, which are snapshots from what we have uh, what we have, have 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 done. But first first of all, let me introduce um, um, Angela Liberatori, our. Uh, or project officer in the commission who has uh, who has responsibility for for this. So, welcome. Thanks for that. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for being here with Raikon for this so-called outreach conference. I'm Angela Liberatore at the European Commission and the Director General for Research and Innovation, uh, which is, if you like, the sponsor of the RECON project, as well as several other projects in the field of social sciences and the humanities. Uh, this is part of the larger cooperation program, where we do put emphasis on the need for problem-oriented research, and for that research to be not only known and used uh, and shared among scholars and academics, but to be also shared, discussed, contested, used uh, by people with a lot of knowledge, eventually practical knowledge, from outside research institutions and academia. So these kind of events uh, are actually uh, very important uh, in our view. I'll be very short and we'll just launch for discussion uh, two questions. I will also attempt some personal answers, uh, but of course those are tentative and uh, for debate. The first question coming from a department of research and innovation where we are discussing uh, how to shape uh, with the other, of course, uh, institution. This is co-decision procedure. We have here the European Parliament, which is one of the co-deciding bodies together with the Council and Commission, uh, what to do with the next framework program in a period of shrinking budgets. So the question one is, uh, is it useful and is it smart to continue funding research first, generally, and social science research uh, in a time of shrinking budgets with public uh, budgets. The second question is, speaking about reconstituting democracy in Europe, whether we can really expect the whole 
to be more than the sum of its parts, that is, democracy within the different 27 member states of the European Union. These, I think, are quite hard questions um, with which I wake up every morning when I go to my office. Uh, and so I tried to give some answers which are maybe inspired by a motto of a fellow citizen of mine of many years ago who said we need to apply the pessimism of reason, the capacity of being always critical and realistic, but also link it with the optimism of will. Even in the hardest time, there is something that can be done. He was in fascist jails at the time. So I will try to answer yes to both questions. And he will say, Angela is a very optimistic lady. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not, but uh, the answers would be as follows. And of course, I pose them for your critical analysis and contestation. Yes, this investing in research in Europe and this investing in this kind of research would be myopic. It would be a non-solution to short-term problems, saving in research would not account for a lot of uh, saving in the general budgets anyhow, but it would have the side effect of jeopardizing first the understanding of what the problems are and the options, both in the medium term and in the longer term. So indeed, uh, it is necessary and important that we do continue uh, our efforts uh, in Europe to support research and knowledge development in its various streams including in this particular stream, which is about what is Europe itself and what are Europeans, how we are developing, living together, uh, or having tensions with each other at various levels, economic, somebody was speaking about solidarity, still there's a word to be used, and what is the relation between democracy and solidarity at the various levels, uh, and all this, of course, in a changing global context, which is what some political scientists would call either an independent variable or a dependent variable, depending on what you want to study. But surely it's, some, it's a variable to be uh, addressed when we want to understand Europe uh, itself and our uh, broader uh, role, as well as our internal changes. So my answer is yes. Don't give it for granted that everybody thinks the answer is yes. Uh, uh, I think I can say it is uh, somehow yes uh, from our side, but this is part of a debate about the next budgetary perspectives. Second answer, uh, again, yes, on whether the whole can be more than the sum of the parts. If the only or main problem was the traditional interpretation of the democratic deficit, that is, we have well-functioning, basically perfect democracies, and they are almost all the same at the national level, so the big problem is you cannot just transfer these uh, nice things at the level which is not the national one. Well, it would be difficult, but after all, we have been innovative enough uh, to, to try to get some, uh, how to say, uh, answers to that kind of uh, democratic deficit issue. Uh, of course, the problem is even deeper. Democracies come in a variety within the EU member states and more broadly. So there is not just one model that can be or not transferred at any other level. And the point is, of course, that there are serious issues with regard to 
the development of our democracies, uh, and I would like to say in both uh, older and newer member states, issues of checks and balances, how we are going, roles of judiciaries, uh, accountability and the uh, role of parliaments. Uh, somebody is speaking about the uh, over uh, the, the uh, excessive role of executive in some areas like security, but this can be also in other areas, both in domestic and European politics. So we do have issues in the nice and important variety uh, and diversity within Europe. This also applies to the variety and diversity of democracy, including some problems with it. So I would say, yes, the whole can be uh, more than the sum of the parts, not because we can have uh, perfectly, even more perfectly uh, working uh, democracy at the European level, but because the European level is an anchor when there are issues, uh, you know, basic attacks to certain basic freedoms, uh, issues indeed of the working or not working on certain checks and balances. Uh, citizens can have... Uh, 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 possibilities uh, to go to the European Court of Justice in some cases, or of course that's not a European Union uh, court, but it's very important also the Strasbourg Court on Human Rights the European Parliament can uh, issue warning or more than that if something seems to be uh, difficult in certain areas, of course this anyhow means that we have to be serious uh, if we want this anchor to function to see what we can do even uh, more and better with regard to democratizing the EU itself. So I don't know whether this takes you or me with regard to the record models uh, one, two, three. Uh, I would say it says uh, model one is still with us in terms of the diversity of democracies, what this means and so on. Uh, we love cosmopolitanism, but we are definitely not quite uh, there yet. Uh, and there are issues even with what federalism mean uh, so far. I think that uh, Eric passionately um, put on the table words like Schengen, Eurozone's solidarity, and so on and so forth. So with this, I thank you again for being here. I look forward to an interesting debate. I hope that uh, the first drafts of the interim, the, of the results of RECON will be the substance for a lively discussion here and even more discussion in the weeks and months to come so that the project can finish with a, with a nicely uh, revised uh, version based on further debate and consultation. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Angela. And um, um, now we have had um, a, um, a huge work package, as it is called in this uh, project management language, on, um, the, the, on, on the constitutional um, uh, essentials of, of the union. And uh, Eric Fossum, who is um, a co- um, uh, um, the coordinator of, of this project together with, 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 with me, uh, he has done a great job in this, uh, in this project and also with regard to, to the research in the, on the constitutional situation in, 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 in Europe and he will now present some of the findings for, for in the, with regard to that. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, you see, uh, I'm uh, basing the talk on this book, The Constitution's Gift 
that is written together with Agustin Menendez. And um, my uh, co-director of this work package, Ben Krum, will later issue his own book on the Constitution, so you have another item verdict as well to uh, look forward to within five or six months. It's probably in press as we speak. But this talk itself is based on this book that's also on display outside. And it brings up the large question on the Constitution. And the, the problem in the European Union, of course, is that you cannot take a number of the established questions or the established conceptions for granted. You have to start deeper down and look at the more fundamentals. So therefore we actually have to establish what kind of entity the Union is, whether it can have a constitution, and also, if so, what status it currently has. And in order to get to this, we look first at the idea of uh, organization, and as you've heard, we are discussing uh, and evaluating the Union from the perspective of several understandings of the Union that also plow into the um, constitutional realm. Many people here, I, I assume, will, will subscribe to the notion that, it, that the option is B is, is currently the, the, the situation, and I will argue that is not the case and that there is something about C, but there are certain ambiguities. So I'll try to get to run you through this um, by first pointing to some riddles in the situation that the Union is currently confronting, I mean, that the Union is facing. And these are not some, simply something we are seeing today, but these go all the way back to the beginning of the European Union, to the, to the type of entity that it was established to be and what it has developed into. So as you see under the so-called genesis, it claims constitutional status. And it has some of the elements of what you associate with a constitution, namely direct effect and a set of institutions that carry it. And in addition, what is particularly interesting, and this does not normally work for an international treaty, primacy, the idea that... Um, Union laws trump national laws, even constitutional norms. And this is impo important because it speaks to the self-identity of a constitutional order. But it raises a question. How can you have primacy in a system that is not a state? And whose constitutional status many people understand to be unclear. And, and therefore this third question comes up naturally. Can it be stable. It lacks some of the sanctioning means. And you're talking about hierarchy. You're talking about power. You're talking about the classical functions of the state to coerce. Remember, the state is a very important coercive system. The union doesn't have these. It's a gentler organization. <laughs> so, to unpack this, we first need to think about different understandings of the Constitution. And the most important ones here are the second and the third. The material, which really speaks to the Constitution as something that in social practice is understood as a Constitution, not, necess not necessarily linked to a formal document. And the interesting point, and I think the big debate in Europe has been the third element, whether this is democratic. But we don't get enough 
We don't get a handle on what's going on simply by looking at different concepts of the Constitution. We get some of the way, but without theory, without a deep understanding of what, how this came about and what it really is and how it figures on the larger landscape of constitutional thought, we don't really get very far. So what we are trying to do in this book is to take you through that kind of excursion. And therefore we need theory. And the important point is this idea of constitutional synthesis and that, and the, the key is what a term that is very frequently referred to, the common constitutional law of the member states. In the sense that the um, national constitution, as, as it says in the slide, were seconded to the role of part of the constitutional collective of Europe. So this is a multi-level constitution par excellence. But they live a double constitutional life because they haven't ceased to be national constitutions at the same time as they also are <coughs> intrinsic portions of a European constitution. Now, this sounds a bit complicated, but you will get a bit more meat on this uh, on these bones as we go through this in my 10 minutes. Um, and this process, of course, is carried by an institutional structure that was initially set up to be supranational, not intergovernmental. And it has brought up and borrowed things from the member states, class in, completely in, in line with this idea of synthesis, that it is built on top of the member states, because the European Union is a constitutional union of already constitutionalized states. If there's nothing else you remember from this room in this, I think this is a critical one. It is a constitution, constitutional entity based in, in a constitutional union of already constitutionalized member states. It's in that sense, in the dense atmosphere of, of arrangements already existing. And these have rubbed off and are also transposed to the um, union level. So what you see is that it's pluralistic in two ways. That makes it a very complex structure. So, so as I said, it is combined both the European with the national, and it is... And it's different from federal systems because there's not in the same way a hierarchical ordering of this. And the structure, the institutions also do not give very clear directions precisely to structure this so that it's a more complex system and therefore also highly susceptible to pressures, internal pressures and external pressures. So it, it's not, it doesn't have the same feet as a state, not only in terms of the organization, but in the structure itself. We often refer to this as a kind of a field which speaks to a more, um, a, a less integrated structure than you normally associate with the, with the state. And therefore, what I'm now giving you is actually something that, structurally speaking, lies very much in the third model of RECON. But it brings in critical elements of both the first and the second model. So it's it's, in that sense, a complex construction. If you could say that it, much of the vocation lies in the third model, but it brings in elements of the first and second. And we can therefore understand the development of the Union from this perspective. And, and key is here the constitutional provisions in the member states' constitutions that mandated European integration or integration 
and constitutional integration. So there was a license to integrate. And this, of course, also had a democratic component. But remember, the union could only claim legitimacy insofar as it complied with this mandate, insofar as it carried the functions of the member states and did that in a manner that was consistent with their constitutional democracies. This is key to how this worked. So there were, was a direction to how the union developed. And the interesting point is that the primacy, which is a deep riddle in the literature, can be understood from this kind of theoretical perspective because it is a collective as I said, multi-level in that sense. That's a deep layer. So the treaties is not only the constitution. The constitution is embedded in the national constitutions of the member states and in the European legal structure. And therefore, the national constitutions, rather than being foes, are actually stabilizing and holding this up as the member states are carrying out union actions. But as you see, what is also important is that if the union structure itself takes off and veers off on a certain interpretation of the treaties that starts to deviate from what is justifiably understood as a common constitutional traditions, then there is a conflict. This is a vertical conflict and this is a problematic conflict because that raises questions of the democratic license and the democratic character of the union as such. What is interesting is that the Larkin experience was an attempt to, to some extent, transcend beyond this, to develop a more full-fledged constitution. It was reined in. And then, with Lisbon, it was pushed back even further. Um, and particularly interesting here is the framing, the explicit framing by the European Council that this is not a constitution. And also the process itself, very different from the open uh, Larkin convention process. It was bilateral negotiations, all conducted in secrecy. So the process that is so important to giving legitimacy to a constitutional arrangement here was subverted and driven back to a very intergovernmental, diplomatic kind of process. But the substance of the treaty still is very much uh, what you associate with Larkin. So therefore you see there's a kind of uh, a conundrum and, and, uh, and a complex structure here that, that uh, um, looks like a constitution, it walks like a constitution, but it doesn't, it's not allowed to quack like a constitution. And, and this is, this is a, a, a problem for any duck that has a vocation to be a complete constitutional duck. Um, and um, it raises larger questions about post-Lisbon, whether the Union has abandoned constitutional synthesis. In the book, we're not saying so. But we think that this is a tricky one, and this is important to keep in mind, that there has been an important constitutional vocation, because ultimately it is democratic constitutionalism that is at stake. That is, the ability to combine and embed democracy in a constitutional framework that understands itself and walks and quacks as a constitution. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Yurek. We are a little bit behind schedule, so uh, we have to rush. This is uh, next is um, Chris, Chris Lord, Christopher Lord, as it is written here. Yeah, yeah, we, we know him as Chris, but um, uh, he's uh, he's uh, working on the, the representation dimension of the of the, the union. So please, Chris. Well, whether I am Chris or Christopher depends entirely on the mood I am in. Um, Anyway, to representative politics in the European Union, um, it's often said about the Union 
that whatever other democratic deficits might be alleged against it is rather good at combining different channels of representation from the European Parliament itself to national parliaments to forms of interest and regional representation. Yet there is a danger in this cosy view. We cannot be sure that merely lumping together several different channels of me and mechanisms of representation will automatically add up to good representation. Now, with a view to investigating whether the different elements of representation in the European arena do indeed combine to produce a form of democratic representation based on public control, political equality, and individual rights to justification, this work package includes a democratic audit of the Union, a study of how far the European Parliament and national parliaments interact in a parliamentary field, and a study of the work of the European Union parties in drawing up their 2009 um, election manifestos. Let me uh, summarise, let me illustrate some selective findings of these projects around three themes. And I do emphasize these are selective findings. There's a lot more going on in this work package than I'm able to summarize here in 10 minutes. First, representative practices at the European level can be more autonomous than is suggested by formal hierarchies of political control. For example, the party groups in the parliament lack many of the controls notably over their own election and selection of candidates that would normally be expected of fully developed parties in a system of party responsible government. Yet, for all of that, the pressures on single national party delegations to adapt to the party system in the European Parliament are there. Few national party delegations are huge and many are small in relation to the Parliament as a whole. Like companies, which are small in relation to their markets, they have to adapt to their context, even in the absence of a visible hand to control them. So it's small wonder then that a survey conducted by the project on the parliamentary field confirms a long-held view, a long-held suspicion, that an element of interparliamentary cooperation works, in fact, through inter-party cooperation between national parties and their European parliamentary parties. Second broad theme, individual efforts matter. The audit the Democratic Audit on the European Union includes a study of debates in the European Parliament based on the so-called Discourse Quality Index, which has been used to study national parliaments. This shows that levels of justification in the European Parliament compare well with national parliaments and that representatives rarely appeal to purely national considerations in order to justify their arguments. Second example of how individual efforts matter. Research um, conducted by our, Europe, our, our Austrian partner, which is looking at, who, uh, the partner who is looking at the party manifestos, um, 
confirms that the behavior of individual MEPs does indeed affect their prospects of re-election. A third theme, public perception of the quality of representation at the European level is nonetheless overwhelmingly conditioned by experience of representation at the national level. Thus, the audit uses Eurobarometer data to rank each member state from 1 to 27 as to how far their publics feel that their voice counts at the European level. In the case of 16 member states, there is a difference of just two places or less out of 27 in the position they occupy in the two rankings. So to conclude, our research in this work package suggests that the system of representation at the European level matters. The behaviour of individual representatives matter. Yet, public satisfaction that these various elements combine to form a satisfactory form of representation remains hostage in many ways to the quality of representation, not at the European level, but at the national level. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Chris. Yeah, yeah it was pretty, pretty interesting. I uh, should, should have had more, looked more into it myself. Yeah. But the, uh, contesting Europe, this is Peter De Wilde. He's, um, he's, uh, he has moved to uh, Berlin now and he would uh, um, uh, report something from the media studies that we have had. Thank you very much. Yes, I'm about to present to you findings uh, from a study on online Euroscepticism. That is, we've been looking at how evaluations of EU legitimacy and on, particularly on the negative side have been expressed on the internet in a um, comparative study including debates in 12 EU member states and transnational websites. Um, what we are interested in for looking at internet as opposed to, say, uh, Eurobarometer data on expressions of Euroscepticism is that on professional news websites and political blogs on the internet, we have the opportunity to study how citizens respond directly to news stories. This is in technical terms referred to as Web 2.0, where websites allow readers to leave comments and we can analyze these comments in context to the original news story. So what we've looked here at um, is the campaign for the European Parliament elections, the recent one in 2009, um, and then we only focus on evaluations of the EU polity, that is, as opposed to, say, uh, evaluations of particular EU policies, like the common agricultural policy, uh, or evaluations of individual politicians, like Barroso, we would not uh, include this in EU legitimacy contestation, because we argue this is the, the normal practice of politics that you would find in any other member state. What is peculiar of interest here is the extent to which the EU itself, as a political system, 
is contested. There we separate between principle, polity, and project, whether principle refers to the basic idea of collaboration among European nation-states to solve common problems in an underspecified form. Uh, the polity refers to the way the EU is now in its institutional setting, the relationship between the different EU institutions, the relationship between EU institutions and member states, uh, and uh, the constellation in terms of which countries are a member and to what extent. And finally, the project of integration refers to the future. Should there be a further widening and or deepening of the European Union? So here's what we find. I'm going to present to you the three different dimensions. Um, when it comes to the principle of integration, should there be cooperation among uh, European member states to solve problems collectively? We find that only a few of the evaluative statements, a minority, throughout Europe addresses this dimension. That is, when uh, news when news organizations report on Europe and feature party politicians, EU institutions, civil society organizations evaluating the EU, these statements only in a minority address uh, the principle of integration, and so do comments left by citizens. Um, we see this varies from uh, non-evaluation, no evaluations on the principle of integration in Belgium, the second row. Uh, to about 35 in the Netherlands. Uh, we also see that, with the exception of Austria, there is, in general, a majority, a plurality of positive evaluations. Very different from the EU polity as it is now, where we see a strong focus in contestation here, um, and with a majority of evaluative statements addressing how the EU looks now, and a majority of those doing so negatively. The red bars are longer than the blue bars in every of the member states under study here. So even though there is strong focus, strong emphasis, and strong criticism on the way the EU looks now on internet debates, the question of whether more or less integration is the answer uh, varies a lot. We see here very strong divergence between discussion on the future of European integration, whether there should be more or less integration, and whether this includes widening of Europe, deepening of Europe, that is, including new member states or taking developments towards a further federalization of the EU. In Greece, this is 2000, summer 2009, before the outbreak of the uh, sovereign debt crisis. In Greece, this is not much of an issue at all. It is strongly debated in France. We also see a diversion uh, in whether there is a majority of positive and whether there is a majority of negative evaluations. So what can we then conclude. First, that looking at debates on the internet, and keep in mind this is both reporting on 
formal political actors, party politicians, EU institutions, but it is a majority of EU citizens responding to these stories. The idea of collaboration among European nation states is not contested, and when it is, it is generally defended. That is, there should be some form of collaboration among European nation states to solve collective problems. But there is strong um, opposition to the way the EU is designed functioning now. This includes the powers of the European institution and the way decisions are made, the extent to which uh, citizens and other societal actors can have an influence on this decision-making, whether countries are a member or not, the, the whole range of the institutional design of the EU currently. Even though there is uh, a common pattern of criticism in the 12 EU member states that we have studied, there are very different answers to how this should be solved. Uh, some debates feature a plurality of positive statements on European integration. There's something wrong with the EU now, and we need more Europe to solve it. Others say, no, there's something wrong with the EU now, and we need less Europe to solve it. In short, then, the Internet debates show us that there is a serious concern with the EU, and that this is widespread throughout Europe, but it doesn't, and it also tells us there's support for collaboration among European nation states, but it doesn't tell us how we might resolve the observed problems. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much. And uh, now we move to the real media from on the same on the same topic in a, in a way. It is uh, Alexandra March from from uh, Bremen, which where we had a, a huge group. Uh, we recognize this huge group studying these things. So, please, Alexandra. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> as you see, I'm going to talk about new patterns of Euroscepticism into um, research projects that we investigated in Bremen. Uh, exactly. These are two research projects, but one dominant research question, so to say. The first project uh, concentrated on the ratification of the European Constitutional and later the Lisbon Treaty by national parliaments. The second project um, concentrated on the 2009 EP elections in the print media. Uh, we had six cases, uh, Germany, UK, France, Poland, Hungary and the Czech Republic. And as I said, two research, these are two research projects, but one dominant research question, which aspects of the European Union's political order were contested and why? Uh, to begin with the first project, um, ratification of the constitution later the Lisbon Treaty. Um, yeah, the dominant question is what is, what was contested by national parliaments? Um, we observed that um, mainstream political parties um, that are dominant in national parliaments um, were not contesting the whole idea of the European integration, um, but only specific uh, institutional or policy uh, competences. Um, we, as our source on, of inquiry, were plenary debates, and um, we looked at the major uh, institutional and policy reforms that were enacted by the Constitution later the Lisbon Treaty, for instance, a new voting system in the Council or uh, 
new competences of national parliaments, according to the Lisbon Treaty, like a warning system. And, yeah, the evaluation of these reforms by national parliaments. Um, we established two patterns of contestation. So the first one, how I call it, discursive, and the second one for voting. Um, discursive contestation, what is this? Um, well, parliamentarians were uh, evaluating this, uh, the, re um, the reforms in the plenary debates, in their speeches, and well, exactly, evaluated either in a positively, positive or a negative way and um, gave their justifications uh, for justify their position. Uh, through voting, it's um, evident um, this is the vote act. So, um, as we know, the Lisbon Treaty was um, um, ratified by national parliaments in, in the countries that we analyzed. So this is a, was a very important act of uh, accepting or rejecting uh, the treaty. Um, Okay, um, we discovered two patterns there. So the governing parties, um, even if they had a negative discourse on certain institutional or policy reforms, they would still tend to vote in favor of the Lisbon Treaty. Whereas um, opposition parties uh, that uh, evaluated um, institutional policy reforms in a negative way would also reject the treaty in, uh, in voting. And once, well, if they had a positive discourse, then obviously they voted in favor um, of the treaty. Um, the major question of the, the whole Recon project, so where the EU should be heading to, how, um, how national parliamentarians um, uh, discussed this problem. Uh, we had the three models in the projects, and uh, we uh, um, operational, we, we um, um, looked at the um, parliamentary speeches also from the perspective of uh, three different democracy models, and um, established that the um, cosmopolitan model was basically absent in the um, parliamentary debates. Um, parliamentarians um, did not uh, perceive it as a legitimate uh, option for the European Union. Uh, they tended to have a bipolar perception. So they were either in favor of uh, institutional reforms, um, uh, developing the European Union in the direction of the federal model or uh, in the opposite direction to so the intergovernmental model. Um, the difference, so the liberal parties or social democrats tended to be more in favor of reforms that um, move the European Union towards uh, federalism and um, uh, conservative uh, parties were more in favor of an intergovernmental um, arrangement. Um, the second project uh, concerns the EP uh, elections, the media, print media. Uh, what was contested? So we looked uh, first. We looked at the quality media, quality print media in the same six countries, uh, but also tabloids. Um, again, we established that the European project, European idea, as such, was not contested, but very specific institutional or policy reforms. Um, what were the patterns of contestation in the media? Um, first of all, um, the political orientation of newspapers mattered. So um, 
um, newspapers located on the left-wing side or on the center, political center, were more in favor or rec recognized the legitimacy of uh, all three democracy models for the European Union um, and uh, um, devoted more attention to, to, to the cosmopolitan arrangement. Whereas conservative media... Um, uh, recognized only uh, this is federal or uh, intergovernmental dichotomy as uh, legitimate. Um, the second observation is that social actors and political actors um, uh, present in the media um, displayed a very different discourse <coughs> on um, the European Union. So, um, social actors like NGOs, experts, um, citizens, um, uh, were the advocates of cosmopolitan ideas, um, although they also recognized other models. Uh, whereas political actors, um, again, were somehow um, um, captured in this, this bipolar perception of European, uh, of European Union, either um, um, <coughs> Well, arguing for assigning more competences to the European level or to the um, to the national. So, you know, to answer the question where the EU should be heading to, um, according to to the national print media, could say that it exactly depends on two factors: so the political orientation of of newspapers. Uh, there was a clear division between the say, liberal left and the conservative media, and um, a type of actors um, uh, that. Um, were present in the um, in the media. Um, exactly. Um, so that's it. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it is uh, Ulrike Liebert who has been in charge in the, for this research in the in the in the in Bremen, and she could not. Uh, she's in Mexico. Mexico, I think, today, so <laughs> she could not come. But um, the next one is Justine Lacroix. She is um, here from the University Libre of the, the Bruxelles. She is. Um, she has uh, been co-editing um, co this book on the European stories, and and she will uh, digs into the intellectual debates on. Uh, on, on, on Europe. It was not planned in a sense when we started the project, but uh, we are, it's a very welcome, the, welcome the contribution to, to this. And I should also take the opportunity to thank her also for being the local organizing, or, organizer together with uh, Francois Fourin on, on, on this event here in, 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 in Brussels. So we are, um, we are grateful for, for, for two things with regard to you. So please have the floor. Okay. Thank you very much. And I would like to thank, uh, especially Marit and Ger, who have been very efficient in organizing this conference, actually. So I will present briefly, as you said, the collective volume European Stories, How Intellectuals Debate Europe in the National Context, which I co-edited with Calypso Nicolaidis. And in, uh, to which many recon partners contributed, including John Eric wrote the piece on Norway. So what, what is this book about? Well, um, I, I think one can say European Stories is the first comparative study on how European integration has been dealt with by intellectuals in distinct national contexts. And more precisely, it focuses on the visions and interpretations of European integration proposed 
since the early 90s, so since the Treaty of Maastricht, by so-called public intellectuals, namely political philosophers, scholars, editors, or writers whose opinions contribute to framing public attitudes. And indeed, one can say that since the early 90s, the question of Europe has re-emerged re -emerge as a bone of contention among major figures of political thought across the continents. And intellectuals with no prior interest in the European Union have come to recognize its relevance to larger philosophical issues, such as uh, the existence of a European public sphere, of a European identity, of a European people. However, uh, it should be clear that both the aims and forms of these normative debates vary greatly, since they reflect uh, the core characteristics embedded in each national political culture. And intellectuals approach the topic of European integration uh, with a cultural repertoire that tends to vary along social, political, and national lines. And this is why this, uh, this volume, this book, uh, has chosen to present a number of country studies, of case studies, which are organized into four groups. Uh, the first part is devoted to the founders, the founders of the European community, and include three countries, Germany, France, and Italy. The second part is devoted to the joiners and analyze three con four countries, sorry, which joined before the end of the Cold War, namely Ireland, UK, Greece, and Spain. The third part is devoted to the returners and analyze three countries uh, which joined after 2000, namely Poland, Romania, and Czechia. And finally, uh, the, the last part of the book analyzed two countries, two countries which do not belong to the EU, Norway and Turkey. And so uh, we believe that this sample of countries uh, covers a number of important aspects, such as old and new members, uh, members and non-members, sovereign, Nordic, Western and uh, Eastern country, Catholic and non-Catholic structure, periphery versus core. So uh, we hope that this should give us enough comparative uh, leverage to convey the variety of European narrative or European stories to be found across Europe. Now, uh, of course, even uh, um, if I should insist that these European stories are very different from one country to another, and even if I can't in five minutes uh, um, I, I can't give justice to this complexity and to this diversity, still this volume argues that the intellectual visions of the European Union in the last two or three decades can be clustered around three distinct normative models, which, as you will see, are very close to the three models identified by John Eric and um, Eric Erickson in framing the Rockons project. So, to, to be very brief, at the one hand of the first opposition, we find what we may call the national civic or status school, which essentially criticizes uh, the EU in the name of a nation state. 
and as its most general uh, viscosal fault is based on the idea that the cradle of both modern democracy and the welfare state is the nation state, which cannot be reproduced at the European level. And as shown in this volume, uh, many prominent thinkers from Norway to the United Kingdom, France, or the Czech Republic offer variation on this theme. And in contrast, and at the other end of the spectrum, are all those who equate more Europe with progress, uh, is what we may call the supranational school, uh, which consider that the building of a European federal state uh, would be is the only way to rescue the achievements of a national welfare state, achievements that are threatened today by the pace of globalization. And there are again many intellectuals who have taken up the flame of European cause, but I think the most well-known is certainly the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas, who has come to embrace this vision in his later work. And finally, uh, there is a first school of thought, which may be called transnational, uh, since it considers Europe as the laboratory for some kind of cosmopolitanism, uh, which should be cosmopolitanism, which should be understood as some form of voluntary legal integration of free states based on regular and organized deliberation, and uh, who consider that the European polity should give birth to a federation of states and peoples. Now, there are other cleavages, of course, such as uh, the debate, for, in for instance, between a European communitarian vision, uh, which considered democracy in collectivist term, or a more liberal vision uh, celebrating diversity, individual rights, and legal constitutional constitutionalism. But again, um, to conclude, I have to insist that these are only common, tr common traits uh, which can be identified but that these debates are most, above all, uh, characterized by their deep diversity. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jusin. Um, we have uh, also invited uh, some um, uh, people to uh, comment upon uh, some of uh, some of the things that we have uh, we have done in this project. And, and the first uh, of all, uh, it is Andrew. Duff, who is, uh, yeah, Mr. Mr. Constitution <laughs> in, in, the, in our, in our field in the sense that he has, he's a member of um, the European Parliament. He was elected from the uh, Liberal Democrats already in 1999 and now he's serving his, uh, his third, uh, his third term. He's spokesman on, spokesperson on constitutional affairs for the Alliance of Liberals and Democrats for Europe and and member of the um, the two um, conventions, which the one for the for the charter and for the for the, the constitution for, for, for the constitution. So he must be in the way there. We are very glad to have you here, and and and, and we are very very um, um, honored by your presence here, and and we look forward to what you uh, what you have to say to us. <laughs> um, well, it's a great pleasure to be here. I think. Uh, um, I g gave up theory of integration some 15 years ago when I decided that it was more 
practical to become a practitioner of politics as opposed to a scholar. But I am still fascinated by the drift of the the academic debate, and I thank you for all your work in this large and comprehensive program of research funded quite properly by the Commission, the Parliament, and the Council. And I certainly insist that as we go forward to the uh, framework program, the eighth framework program, we draw on the experience of uh, the FP6 in the field of social sciences and reinforce it. As the chairman has said, we know that European integration is at risk. Um, I have uh, never subscribed to the school that says that we are condemned to succeed. I certainly think that under the present financial instability and the economic crisis and the incapacity of states to move forward self-confidently to implement the Treaty of Lisbon fully, quickly and effectively, we are at risk of sliding backwards. Um, And although the treaty is a great treaty and consolidates, clarifies and confirms the enormous statutory authority of the EU, there are still real problems, as all the speakers have um, evinced, uh, of the popular legitimacy of the EU. And uh, Parliament, at least, and I think the Commission, I hope the Commission, although uh, this Commission is uh, more of an opportunistic Commission than a strategic uh, Commission, certainly the uh, Parliament is uh, finally addressing the problem of uh, popular legitimacy seriously. Um, At the heart of the problem, I believe, is that uh, uh, national political parties have now uh, failed to sustain the integration process in a uh, democratic or efficient way, especially uh, governing political parties uh, seem to me to be increasingly uh, terrified, and I do mean that, terrified of the European project. Of course, we also have the right-wing nationalist populist populist, xenophobic parties who are out there growing and enjoying themselves in this febrile political environment, 
oh, oh where coherent, strong, forceful political uh, leadership from the uh, mainstream political parties in uh, favor of integration has almost ground to a complete stop. Because uh, national political parties have now become dysfunctional over the EU, uh, national parliaments have become an obstacle to the uh, full full implementation of the Treaty of Lisbon and uh, carrying the logic and the spirit of Lisbon forward into new policy sectors. Especially, of course, at this time, the sector of economic uh, governance, uh, where, if we can succeed in installing a credible, viable, discernible form of economic uh, government, uh, that is to say, oh, one that quacks uh, 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 like uh, an economic uh, government, we will sh- uh, uh, soon be impinging upon the citizen, uh, not simply as elector, but as a taxpayer. So the problem of political legitimacy becomes more acute. National parliaments slow to wake up to the import of the Treaty of Lisbon are displaying a mixture of ignorance tinged with jealousy, especially targeted at the European Parliament. And if there's a single part of the treaty that we are not as yet in a position to implement, it's the injunction in Protocol 1 and 2 of the treaty that we improve the interparliamentary collaboration between uh, national parliaments and the European Parliament. And, of course, the pressure on political party, which is the vertical linkage between the one and the other, is is therefore intense. On the 8th of June, uh, the uh, Parliament in Strasbourg will vote on the reform of the electoral procedure of the uh, European Parliament. This is uh, a project which has taken five years to uh, come to fruition and a a good degree of uh, compromise, a bit of bullying, um, uh, some bribing. Uh, But we are almost there, and we will, I think, uh, succeed in establishing a proposal for treaty uh, change uh, which will install a transnational list for a pan-European constituency with those lists uh, created, composed by the European 
federal political parties and to own, not by the uh, national political parties. Of course, this will um, isn't only going to cause a, a, a competition between the European political parties and the national political parties, but it's also going to provoke a greater degree of contestation between the federal and state levels. Some people are disconcerted by this. I have to say I'm excited by it, because if we can't grow these uh, nascent, rather primitive federal political parties into becoming proper campaigning organizations, competing for ideology, for policy, for seats, votes, then I do fear that the experiment at uh, building a uh, post-national democracy uh, will have uh, comprehensively uh, failed. Um, I must pick up my little notes because I probably had something else to say. Oh, yes, yes, I do, actually. Um, uh, uh, going forward to um, 2014-2015, which I think will be the time for the uh, next convention and big reform of the treaties, um, uh, we are starting to draw up a, a catalogue of, of, of measures that we would like to see included uh, um, as uh, part of that agenda. The key point, the most important point, from which we will not uh, federalist, I'm speaking now on behalf of the federalist movement, not just the European Parliament, the key point from which we will not b- budge or be pushed uh, th- uh, this time is that we've got to uh, modify the entry into force provisions of the treaty. That is to say that although all future treaty uh, revision must be agreed as a, as now by all uh, governments of the member states, th- the entry into force is going to happen. Is going to have to happen before. Uh, the uh, ratification procedure has been completed in all member states. If we do this, we will be following the, the convention in, uh, in other federal systems, including the USA, which w- would not have been created uh, if all the 13 states were obliged to agree to the new constitution before it was in force. But also, we will be conforming to the ordinary uh, procedure of the international treaty organizations, where international treaties change before all signatory states have ratified. So there might be people here who are not militant federalists. And if you're of that school, then you can also take a comfort that in the European Parliament, fully cognizant of its new powers, fully focused on the aspiration to build a federal union of states and uh, 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 citizens, we will soon 
be in a position to force upon these timid, reactionary, skeptical national leaders the constitutional response that our continent needs and that the world needs from Europe. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you so much. Listening to you, we see there is hope for, for Europe. Uh, Lisbeth Kirk is the next, uh, is a, uh, next on the list. She's the uh, uh, founder and editor of the, uh, in chief of the EU Observator, and uh, and she is a long has long standing experience as journalist and reporter on the uh, on the EU. We are very pleased to have you here, and look very much forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with academics for a change. Normally, I'm in the news business because news is business. Um, hearing about the constitution, something that looks, walks, but doesn't whack like a constitution, I think that must be the title of today. Um, but then turning to the press and how this constitution affects the work of the press, having in mind that press is regarded as the fourth power in society. Even though it's not part of the constitution, it plays an important role. It's, it's always... Uh, by measuring the freedom of the press, the independence of the press, that we regard a, a country being a democratic country or not a democratic country. It's a very important part of this uh, measurement. Now, how does the press then operate vis-à-vis -vis the European Union under the new constitution? <coughs> I'd say we have created a big problem and we are far from having solved it. Um, and, and I think it's not... Uh, if you took, take the sort of the, um, the votes in any European election that has taken place up to date, it has gone down percentage time by time. Fewer people turn out and cast their vote in a European election. Uh, I think the press is suffering from the exact same problem that also fewer and fewer people really want to read about the European Union. And because press is a business, news is a product, Press will very often produce and put their resources into looking for news that sell and can provide a revenue to keep publishing the newspaper. So the parliament in elections and the press in selling newspapers are basically suffering from the same problem of a very low interest among ordinary people in European affairs. Uh, you can see it in many ways. I have just uh, for this occasion asked in the commission where you do accreditation to become a journalist and work in Brussels as a journalist to have a press card issued like this and you can have access to institutions. There's currently, uh, 2010, the latest figure is 935 journalists in Brussels holding this press card. If you go back five years to 2005, it was 1,031. But going down the number of people working as journalists in Brussels, and it's exactly the same trend if you look at the statistics for the number of media being present in Brussels. 2005, we had 685 media here in Brussels. Today, we have only 547. Now, if you then do a little bit of mathematics and see, well, how many journalists actually per media is working to look into the details of what this huge uh, lawmaking system is producing. Per average, you have 1.7 journalists per media. 
How much can you expect that 1.7 journalists can look into all the details spanning from uh, no, known fly zones over Libya to economic crisis in Greece to all the different topics that we're dealing with, constitutional change in June, election systems passed by the parliament and so forth. I think you, you somehow may under, overestimate what the press can actually inform you about vis-à-vis -vis the European Union. And I'm often surprised when I see how much academics actually base their research on what is printed in the press. Do you know what you're doing? <laughs> um, but the press is, this is my last point, press is not the only party informing about the European Union affairs. There are at least two other big and growing groups of information providers. One group are the communication people. I was doing a little study, just going through quickly, and this is not an academic research, maybe you can do it better and, and really profound. I was just checking websites from the Parliament, from the Commission, from the Council, from the Court, just the main EU institutions, looking up in the press section, how many people can I call as a journalist for information about uh, the institutions? And I found that I have probably two or one and a half journalists can draw on one communication person. So, and this group is growing, and they're much better paid than journalists. So we have a group of information communication people who are also part of this discussion, how do we inform citizens about the European Union. Now, people working in the communication departments have, of course, other tasks than just informing journalists. They also produce websites. They answer questions. Uh, sometimes they also inform their employers, because these people are not independent. They will always inform in the way that suits their employer, the party that have employed them, the organization, the institution that have employed them. But that important group, and I, I find very little sort of research showing what is this group doing? Is it, is it good? Is it valid? Um, so this is just an idea that I spread here in this nice room. The other group that is also growing really fast, and this is where all the money goes, because money doesn't go to the press. The independent press is suffering from a very low revenue and is going down, 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 down. So this is a problem that is growing, but there is information and there is money. This money is, uh, I think, linked to the Constitution again, and this very complicated decision-making process that we have built with the Constitution, uh, meaning that it's extremely difficult to follow every single piece of legislation that is passed through the European Union system. We have moved a lot of decision-making uh, from national parliaments to the EU institutions, but sort of the, the public um, awareness of what's going on is disappearing along the way. <laughs> but a lot of groups, organizations, NGOs, those who fight cancer or, or work in big business, they all need to know what is the legislation coming out of the European Union system. So what they do is they put a lot of money these years and more and more money into hiring lobby groups, consulting groups in Brussels. They might set up their own uh, offices here um, to, to, to gather the information. If I go to the European Parliament because I want to know what's going on in Mr. Duff's uh, committee, I would have to come maybe half an hour before the meeting even starts if I want a seat as a journalist, because all the seats in the committee will be taken by people who are employed by these lobby groups, uh, communication departments or, or offices, who will sit in this committee and they will take very detailed notes of what was decided and send it home to whoever employed them and pay them to do it. My concern is that this information is available, 
It's put together, it's very correct, but it's not public available. So the sort of the ordinary people will be lacking and is to a certain extent even lacking more and more real and sob sober information, while the information is available, but to those who have the money to pay to get it. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we should uh, have a um, a closer look at it. And uh, some of the, our um, work at Tricon has, in fact, exactly documented this complex uh, process and 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 how uh, how protracted it is, and and from a democratic perspective, how 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 dangerous this can be. So, um, and we need the media in order to to get this out. Yeah, but though there is. Um, Time for coffee, and since we have, we are, we have, we have been pushing so hard on people to be, to be sharp with regard to time, not, not using more than 10 minutes. We are two minutes, uh, or a few minutes uh, ahead of schedule. So if we could start again at half past uh, 11, that would be, that would be good. Okay, thank you.